Whether one is listening to this in Myanmar or from outside the country, we know it is a very difficult time for those of us who hold the Golden Land and its people in our hearts. In trying times like these, we can all use a bit more care and compassion in our lives. So on behalf of the team here at Insight Myanmar, I would like to say, in the traditional way Metta has offered, may you be free from physical discomfort. May you be free from mental discomfort. May you not meet dangers or enemies. May you live a peaceful and happy life. And may all beings be free and come out of suffering. And with that, let's move on to the show. episode of Insight Myanmar podcast, we're talking to Michael Stein. Michael, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. Yeah, so I want we're going to get into your journey of meditation, which uh, certainly involves the lineage and organization of SN Goenka, but also involves other great meditator figures and teachers early on in your journey that we'll get into. Uh, let's get right into that now. So before we get into how you started meditation and your experiences with Goenkaji and some of these other great masters, can you tell us about yourself, where you came from and growing up and your childhood and family background? Well, I, I grew up in Long Beach, New York, right outside of the city, beach community. Um, and um, everything was great until my mother passed away at 14. Um, and after that, um, that's when I really started to need meditation. I was pretty angry, upset, and, you know, it was, uh, it's the 60s, and, um, after that, you know, sort of college, and then a lot of, uh, a lot of getting high, and hanging around, got in trouble here and there, and, uh, finally, um, one day, I decided to, uh, leave America and go to, and, uh, travel a bit. So leading up to your decision to leave America and, uh, and, and, and look for answers perhaps elsewhere, just to know a bit more about your family background, you mentioned 14 was this really yeah. traumatic event with your uh, my mom. My father was Viennese. He escaped um, 
uh, in the late 30s uh, from Austria and came to America. He was maybe 10 years older than my mother, and he, he owned a movie theater in Vienna. And uh, of course, him and the whole family lost everything, and then they came here, and he started a business, and um, everything went fine until my mother got sick of cancer, and then sort of everything sort of, um, you know, the business went out, the business started turning bad. It was a, a business that made these things called pants creasers, and they came mm -hmm. out with stay pressed pants. So at the same time, my mother became sick with cancer, um, and... Um, his business started going bad, so he had a really, as you would say, a duca-filled experience at that point, and, um, and that was it, really. You know, that's pretty much. It. And I have two sisters: one who lives in Australia, married an Australian, and another sister who passed away from cancer about uh, thirteen years ago. Mm -hmm. And I understand your family was escaping Europe because of their Jewish background. Uh, and what kind of Jewish home were you raised? And when you faced this kind of tragedy and trauma, was there anything within the Jewish faith that helped you or your family at that time? No, it was actually a bad experience. Um, in the town we grew up with, there were like six temples. We went to the temple that was closest to us, which was an Orthodox temple. Mm -hmm. uh, the men sat on one side, the women sat someplace else. I went to Hebrew school for many years after school, but um, it never really resonated with me. And actually, after my mother died, um, an incident happened at the temple when we went to um, the anniversary. You went to uh, Kol Nidre, which was a um, memorial on Yom Kippur. And um, I had a bad experience, and I never went back. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was really no resources you had in terms of like family or religion or spirituality or even society or arts or creativity that you had to turn to with that trauma? Well, I did have one thing. It's the place I grew up was a very tight community. Um, Long Beach, every, we were sort of a, an island really. And um, everybody was very close to each other. And um, everyone knew my mother. She was very involved in um, many things there. So um, I, I had a lot of support from my friends and other people, but nothing, you know. So I got in a lot of trouble, but I never got in trouble, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Now, I'm wondering about the years of all this, because when you talk about going to India, the, you, you reference this being the 60s, and there's so much happening in society and arts and culture and politics at this time. I'm just thinking of myself and, like, my timeline of when I started meditating was the 90s and 2000s. And really the only thing that happened in that period for like my lifetime and generation is like before and after September 11th. And other than that, it doesn't really matter all that much if you were like 95 or 98 or 06 or something else, because it wasn't like the, the 60s where it was just so chock full of really important things going on that also that aren't just happening outside, but are influencing the, the youth culture and the, the, the inner landscape as well. My mother passed away in 1963. I was 14. I graduated high school at 16 in 1965, and I really was not interested in college or anything. But at that point, you either went to college or you could wind up in Vietnam. So mm -hmm. I went to college, stayed there. Most of my college was basically uh, protesting and smoking a lot of weed <laughs> and getting high and doing other things of that nature. Um, and that was in the 60s. Once, once I knew that I no longer had to stay in college to get out of Vietnam, 
uh, that's when I left, which was 1971. I was in Europe, and Europe became, it was like, and actually it was very odd. I went to see my aunt in Vienna, mm -hmm. and actually my father showed up and showed me where, you know, different things in uh, Vienna from his boyhood, which was, which, and he, he didn't know I was there, and I didn't know he was coming. So we just bumped into each other there at my aunt's house. And then from there, I went to Israel. And I wandered around Israel. I didn't really, at that point, the Israelis didn't, you know, they liked you if you went to a kibbutz. But I had hair, I had very long hair. And um, I was very sort of in the anti-establishment. And the Israelis weren't that fond of that because they didn't want us to influence the young Israelis because they wanted them to keep uh, be a little bit militaristic. Or I, I was gonna, I was gonna ask: Was there not a counterculture movement in Israel at that time? Not much at that point. Mm -hmm. it happened a long, a long time. The, most of the people who came went to kibbutzes. It was a very big kibbutz movement. So as I was in India, I went down to Alat, which is where, um, and I met some guy. And he said, "Hey, I'm going to um, I'm going to Afghanistan and probably India. You want to come?" I said, "Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> Better than mm -hmm. this." I just mm -hmm. so flew to flew to Turkey, um, and uh, started the journey overland to India. Mm, how was that? Uh, it's like a once in a lifetime thing to do because if you do it once, you'll never do it again. <laughs> right. Pretty, pretty hard, I imagine. Then, yeah, and it was um, all these people met at this place called the Pudding Shop, and there mm -hmm. were you know, people were going, and you had to you had to leave in the fall because of winter and other things coming, and also at that point, conflict started in Bangladesh and, uh, and Pakistan, India wars. So we actually, we actually got a ride in a Volkswagen bus with two surfers from California who wanted to go surfing in India. <laughs> So we're in this bus and we're driving across Turkey and we get into a car accident. The bus hits a Land Rover that's parked on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. So the bus, of course, is no longer functional. And we're in east we're in eastern Turkey. Yeah. Eastern Turkey, which mm -hmm. is not which is already Asia. Like mm -hmm. Istanbul was sort of still you know, European. But once you got out past there and down, it was very um Asian. In uh, that way, so we uh, this is <laughs> so I dislocated my toe in the accident, mm -hmm. and I had to. They took me in a hospital, and some guy with a bloody vest snapped my toe back in. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had to wait for the uh, army was in charge of Turkey then. So we this colonel came and uh, to investigate the accident. So we're all this. There were five of us lined up there. And um, he talks to the driver of the other car, and all of a sudden he's talking to the driver, and all of a sudden he starts yelling at him, and he starts smacking him in the face. <laughs> so I said to myself, "We hit him, and that's what he did to him." I said, "We're cooked." Hmm. So it turns out the guy was lying to him, and he just said, "Okay, you guys can leave." So hmm. um, everybody sort of split up. These Couple of California, the California guys wanted to stay with their their van to see if they could fix it. But we got on a bus and got out of there and went into Iran. Mm -hmm. And through Iran, then it was the twenty fifth hundred anniversary of the Peacock Throne. The Shah was still in charge. Mm -hmm. And in Iran, if they caught you smoking hash at that time, mm 
uh, it was the death penalty. So hmm. I didn't stay long to be the mm-hmm. So we went through Iran into Afghanistan and got to the border of Iraq, Iraq and um, went to the border guards. The border guards were very nice. They smoked ash with us, sold us ash. These were the and this, Afga- Afghanistan was a very different place then, very sure. well, mm-hmm. not like it is today. Mm-hmm. So then we, you know, kept, kept taking buses and stuff to um, to Kabul. And when we were in Kabul, um, we we started. Um, it was the last stop before you would go into India. At the time, um, it was sort of the beginning of sort of problems between Pakistan and India and there were all these threats of the border closing mm-hmm. and if the border closed, you could get stuck in Afghanistan or you'd have to fly over. At that point, I only had a couple of hundred dollars, so I didn't want to get stuck any place. Mm-hmm. So um, this, one of the other guys from California actually showed up in Kabul. This other f- person I was traveling with sort of got a little weird, started doing way too much drugs. So. Um, this California guy, uh, Tim and myself decided to, you know, we hooked back up and we went to um, India. You know, took the bus through the Khyber Pass into Pakistan and then we uh, crossed the border into India. And there was all these, and we got there, you know, maybe a month before the war started. And actually it was very strange because we took a bus and then some trains through Pakistan and then we got to the Indian border. And for myself, it was very, when I crossed the border into India and I stepped into India, I had this feeling like I was home. Hmm. It was like, you know, okay, here I am. I'm finally here. Mm-hmm. So in the very beginning, all I was interested in was, you know, smoking, you know, it was a, there were people on this whole trail all over, people who were into spiritual, people who wanted to get high, people who were doing all these different things. So... Um, we we wound up um, taking the train then into Delhi, spent the night in the train station, and um, so I got a place in Delhi to stay. It was like cost us like a dollar or something. Oh, and when I was there, uh, Ramdas was in town at that point, so I went to see Ramdas, and um, he was staying at the Palace Heights then. So hung around there for a day or so, and then we decided to go to Goa, which was like a, a Portuguese colony. Um, uh, so they celebrated Christmas it was a big thing it was before it became very popular now it's a big Indian resort at that time it was just an empty you know just really nice beaches so um, we took the train to Bombay and then took a boat down to Goa we rented a house with all these people uh, seven or eight of us in a house and we just hung out in, um, in Goa for a while beautiful beaches and while I was in Goa some this guy I bumped into, I bumped into somebody I knew from home. We hung out for a while and he started traveling with us. And um, I met this guy um, and he said he was going to go to Bombay to sit a meditation course with this um, Indian man who was a businessman. And he, you know, um, and it was a 10 day course. I said, oh, that's interesting. But then what happened was um, I didn't go because it was in Bombay, and Bombay then became under a blackout. Mm-hmm. And I really had no desire to go to an, another Indian city. Um, so um, I passed that first up. That was the first I heard about Cuenca. And I passed up that opportunity. That's still 71? Yeah, that was 1971. 
Mm-hmm. And he had only been teaching for two years at that point. Mm-hmm. And he only been teaching Westerners for a little over a year or so, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So um, from there, you know, I traveled um, across to Benares and up to Kathmandu and went trekking and, um, you know, did all the things that you, many of the so-called, uh, you know, trek to Asia hippie stuff. And, um, you know, and then I, I bumped into this uh, Swedish, this Swedish woman I was, uh, I went out with for a bit there and then, um. Uh, I, I was oh then somebody else told me when I was in Benares that Goenkaji was teaching a course in Bodh Gaya at the time, and then again I passed it up. <laughs> mm. So I I went to Kathmandu, came back down, and then I decided I wanted to stay in India longer, but I had no money. Mm. So I arranged uh, I um, I got money sent from home from my grandmother and flew back to the states and uh, worked all summer. And then flew back to um, flew back to India via. Um, I stopped in Sweden, and then I flew back to India. And when I got into Delhi, the first thing I did was hell up, head up to Dalhousie to do a course with Goenkaji. Mm, so, what drove you to want to take it? Your this third chance, this third opportunity. When you're hearing about it, you passed on the because first I two. I really what? wanted to do it. I had all these friends who had done people I traveled mm. with. Everybody was telling me about it. Uh huh just resonated with me but you know sometimes things resonate but it's just not the right time mm-hmm. so yeah. i went to delhousie where he was teaching course and i got there a day late uh, i got there day one of the course and i was he was teaching another course after that so i said oh i'll do the next course but i went over there and um they said uh they asked going he said oh yeah he can he can start today so um, that first day evening, I started the course. And um, Delhousie, the course in Delhousie was in a hotel. And um, it overlooked in the Himalayas. It's a foothill of the Himalayas, about 7,000 feet. So they said to me, um, go over to Gwenkaji's room and he'll teach. And you can start and he'll give you, um, you'll take the precepts and surrender and he'll teach you anapana so it turned out that the rooms were such that there was a bedroom and then there was an ante uh, a sitting room in front so Gwenkaji was in the sitting room and i went in there and it was just Gwenkaji and myself and he started chanting a little bit and started uh told me i take the precepts and he gave me anapana and you know so i had my i had a a unique experience to start off my time with them. So, um, so after that, took the course, and um, then I did another course, and I just, you know, I mean, then I did a thirty-day course. At that time, you could just send any amount that you wanted. Um, Gwenkaji stayed at different places, and he stayed sometimes. Sometimes he'd teach three courses at a place, and. And you could then sit 10 days or 20 days or 30 days. So I sat a 30-day course fairly close in the beginning. And then we went to Bodh Gaya. And I went there for the first time. I had never been before. This was 1972. Mm-hmm. And um, if you've been to Bodh, Bodh Gaya, then was a little village. It wasn't built up like it was now. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
it was it was small. There weren't a lot of people in this. And Koenkiji was coming to do first his self course, which he used to do every year there, and then he would do a, a regular course afterwards. And when I got off the train from Benares to Gaia, I took a tonga, uh, which is a horse-drawn carriage from Gaia to Bodh Gaya, which I'm just guessing now. I guess it's probably about a three or four-mile dro- drive. And I was back in, in my mind. I had just finished sitting 30 days. And I was sitting there, and I was out, and I was looking at people, and it was just like it was thousands of years ago to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And it was just very moving experience for me to, to, to come to Bodh Gaya. And um, so Gwenkaji did a self-course. I didn't do the self-course then. I managed. He did. He let a certain amount of people do the self-course. And the other people went to the Gandhi Ashram, which where Manindra lived. Mm-hmm. And they did a self-course there also. And the other people in the uh, Burmese Vihara. So um, I managed the course at the, uh, with another person at the... Um, uh, at the Gandhi Ashram. The Gandhi Ashram was right in the center of Bodh Gaya. Um, not far, maybe, you know, not far from the uh, temple. Mm-hmm. And after that, Koenkaji did his, did a regular course. And I sat that. And then they left. And I started. Everybody left. And Goenkaji was going to Bombay then. A lot of people, we would follow him around then. But I had sort of, at that point, needed a little break. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I... Uh, uh, so the friend and I went up to Darjeeling to hang around um, and do things. And when I was up at Darjeeling, I went to see Kalu Rinpoche, which uh, was very, uh, is, he was very, very, um, very powerful and very calm and great person. Mm-hmm. And so I went there, and then I sat there with him at um, in Sonada, which was his temple, uh, uh, where his monastery was. And um, they did a thing which uh, you took refuge with him and stuff. And so I did that, and he hit me on the head, and it was like all of a sudden the top of my head just completely opened up. So it was <laughs> it was a pretty moving type of experience at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't see him again for another six years. Uh, no, I saw him again. He came to Rajgir when Koenkaji was there. And that was the only t- couple of times I saw him. So that's really interesting. And there's a couple of things I'm wondering about as you're just, you're, you're weaving this really delightful tale, the imagery of, uh, of, of this, this kind of caravan of these uh, hippies that are, going overland to India and how they're the, the culture, the counterculture that's being formed, obviously in protest to Vietnam and other countercultural things that are happening at that time, predominantly in the West and um, trying to understand just what it felt like a bit more in that crowd, which is really a time lost to us in history. I mean, of course that India is still India and it's attracted Westerners for ages and will continue to, but this particular moment in time, of the way it was tra- attracting them and the way it was affecting them, of course, not just with meditation and Goenka, but everything from, you know, the Beatles to, uh, to anything else that's getting at the heart of the West. Uh, and I'm thinking of how, like in the discourses in the 10 day discourses, uh, I think it's on day nine or day 10, Goenka has this line that always draws a laugh where he talks about you, you come to India and you do, you do this and you do that. And then you get, you do the Goenka trip, you do the Goenka yeah. trip. 
And the way that, uh, and, and it always made sense to me then, but the way that you're describing this, um, this, this counterculture activity in India and how you're coming together with different hippies coming apart, you're talking, some people are more interested in this, some are more interested in that, some don't really know what they're interested in, and maybe um, suddenly they get pulled by, by this or that thing, that it's, uh, it, it's kind of hitting that context where in, in, um, with, with this kind of escapism or, or adventure or looking for something new that's happening at the time, Goenka is but one of several themes, I'm sure, that are revolving around and starting to be discussed along with other ones. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of flesh out that imagery for us. And, you know, and, and I ask this also because sometimes when we look back on history and we're today, we know what happened with Goenka. We know the mass movement it became in these centers all around the world and teacher appointments and everything else. And so there could be a way of kind of superimposing where we are now back on this being the predominant thing and this and and having a a view of it that links right to what it's built with today but at the time it takes a different shape because it's but one of several competing themes that are happening with the other people that are interested and so i'm wondering if you can take as as much as your memory is able to take us back to what it felt like in those years of the role that it was playing, how it was being talked about, how it was being known, where it was fitting in with other parts of that counterculture and community? Um, well, you have to realize that there were people from all over the world then. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there were a lot of Europeans, Australians, people from the States, you know, all who had traveled. And you would keep meeting the same people in different places at different times. You know, maybe you'd meet him in Goa, you'd meet him in Benares, you'd see him in Kathmandu. People, you know, I had people I met on a train in Pakistan and I was living with them in Kathmandu. You know, it was just, it was just a very, um, everyone was really open about things and sharing and it was a great place. And India was India. There's, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like, I mean, when you were in India, you were isolated then, okay? There were no newspapers and no stuff. There was no internet. If you wanted to make a phone call to the states, you had to go to the to a general telephone office and book a time the next day to get a trunk line to make the call. So it was certainly, we were very isolated in our own little worlds then. And it was wonderful because I really was very happy to be isolated in a completely different climate and mm. a completely and when I mean a climate, a completely different mental climate. It was mm -hmm. a whole different um, thing. It had nothing, it had very little to do with, you know, European, Judean, Christian, you know, things. It was a, things that you never even thought about. Yeah. As you were saying is that there were many, there were people who went to some Indian teachers. You know, there was Ram, there was Nim Curly Baba, there was, you know, the Dalai Lama, there was Kalu Rinpoche, um, there were... Oh, bug! Uh, there were people who were just starting. It was Sai Baba. So, so different people went to different places and different yoga and different this. And everybody sort of got along. And there, and there was Manindra teaching. And you know, there were, so everybody sort of did their own things. And then came back and shared stuff with each other and said. And one of the things was a lot of people. You know, it wasn't strict. There wasn't rules and regulations or anything then, right? So. Um, Every people would say, "Oh, you got to go do a course with Goenka. It's great, you know." And I mean, you know, there are a lot of people around who you know now. Like I was there with Sharon, with Joseph, you know, Danny Goldman. There were other. There was a lot of um, people who are now 
my age in their 70s who were there at that time. And we were all friends and we all did a lot of things together. And I'll get on later and what we did when we finally came back. But it was funny. It, we stayed in the plains of India during the winter. And um, we would go up to the mountains in this to get out of the heat. And every little sort of hill station had a lot of hill stations had their own little thing. In Dalhousie, it was mostly Goenkaji people. Nani Tall is where um, people um, who were with Nim Curly Babu went and Ramdas. And then there was, um, if you want, if you were Tibetan, you would wind up either going to Darjeeling or you would go to Dharamsala. So it was like little group, different group. But there was no, everybody liked each other. There was no animosity, nothing with anybody. Mm -hmm. no. And were, were most people doing some form of spirituality or were there others that were blissed out on drugs or music or oh, something yeah, else? That was Manali. <laughs> if you wanted to get high, you went to Manali. Oh, yeah. I think it's the same today. Yeah, and Kathmandu, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were, there were people who just kept getting high. I was one of them from the very beginning. I mean, I could go into many stories, but we'll skip that for a while. <laughs> but, you know, people would, you know, there a lot of people just came to uh, India to get high. And, to, sure. and there were a lot of people who came to India, to, you know, they, they were trekking, people did yoga. I mean, it, it was so open and, there were, you know, so many places to go and you have to re and india was crowded then this is a mm -hmm. this is a fact that i always keep remembering now india was crowded then and there were 600 million people mm -hmm. now there's 1.6 billion people mm -hmm. and from what i understand the country hasn't developed a larger land mass so <laughs> it must be you know it's incredibly crowded now so and where did the 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 kind of cultural um, uh, divide? How how was that manifested, or how was it overcome? And I'm thinking of, you know, firstly, obviously, just having a lot of these counterculture Westerners who are standing out even in their own countries, and even having clashes there, let alone coming to a you know, oh, conservative religious country, and then within the the meditative or spiritual communities as well. So within the country, and then within those particular spiritual communities and teachings that are taking place. Some of them really liked us and stuff, and some of them, some of the people thought we were pretty weird. And they actually came out with a movie at that time, an Indian movie called Hari Krishna Hari Ram, and it was about um, these uh, hippies in Kathmandu who like seduced or you know got some Indian people to come with them and it became the biggest hit after that anytime they saw you they'd start singing the theme to it <laughs> <laughs> it was quite funny um but you know it depends where you were and who you were and how you and how you behave towards them you know mm -hmm. you know if you were nice and did this there were also too in that time there were a lot of people still left over in nepal and not so much in india who were in the peace corps mm -hmm. who were around and um you know they, Indians in, in Nepal, they like they loved America, you know. Um, they liked the Americans. It wasn't very easy in the beginning during the Bangladesh War mm -hmm. because the um, Americans went for, um, helped Pakistan, which was not what the Indians wanted that to happen. Mm -hmm. They were sort of a little um, anti-American at that point. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, and then how about within the spiritual communities you're going? I I don't think he could. I didn't think he, he really couldn't believe it at first. Mm -hmm. you know? 
Goenka couldn't believe it. Oh, yeah, I mean, Harry, I mean, he did and he didn't, but you know, there were all of these people coming, you know, hip, you know, wearing Indian clothes and this and that, long hair, you know. But what he did say afterwards was, all the people came and they worked really hard. So, <laughs> how did he understand the hippies? Because I mean, this movement was kind of it was taking off in real time. It wasn't like you had historical context to understand who these people were and where they're coming from. All he cared about was you came and you and you wanted to learn meditation and you worked hard mm. and you learned meditation and you kept coming. Mm. And after a while, you know, he, he got to know you personally, a lot, a lot of us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was very open to that. I mean, he was a, he was a very um, high-end Indian. He wasn't, you know, not like the people you see in the street. He was a very well-to-do um, business person at the time. But he accepted us. He used to joke, you know, about it and later, you know, um, when he first saw you. And he, he, I, part of him was like, what are these people? I mean, underneath you, I'm sure he was thinking, what are these people like? You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was like an invasion. You know, but we were fine together. You know, we, you know, again, it was sort of a similar type of thing. I mean, I knew most of the people, you know, I knew Mr. Coleman, Hover, Dennison pretty well. And, you know, they, um, you know, when they saw you were serious and you were meditating. And by that time, too, we weren't as freaky as we were. You know? <laughs> yeah. We were a little bit more under control. And we, and we were, you know, we were um, more, um, you know, wanting to learn meditation and keep practicing and stuff. But yeah. Ubach, you couldn't go to Burma then. You yeah. Know? You yeah. couldn't do these things. Those people, were, you know, and there is generational. They were like your parents' age or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, we all got along afterwards pretty well. In the beginning, you know, everybody, you know, that your first reaction to anything is you react to stuff from your preconditioning. So your first reaction might not have been so, you know, good. But afterwards, um, when you got to know each other, everybody was very close, you know. Almost all of us were more in tune with the, the, the uh, we, we we were in tune to Goenkaji, you know, nothing else. How so? What do you mean by that? Well, he was our teacher, you know. They were just people who studied, who were, you know, people with him. And we did courses with them, but it was never the same type of thing, you know. Right, right. Your first teacher is always your first teacher. First teacher is the most important, you know. Yeah, yeah, time. yeah, it is. And uh, as... The, you were first coming to take these courses with Goenka. Of course, the most of the people in this countercultural movement are they're searching for something outside where they're coming from. That's obvious, but they're also doing it through drugs, intoxicants, free sex, other kinds of things that are violating Sheila, the five precepts. And so how did this start to clash in those early courses as they saw this kind of in line with their other experiments and Goenka saw, probably saw it a very different way? He didn't, he didn't, he was not, you know, um, he was not that heavy about it at that point. You know, if you went to talk to him, he would tell you, but there were no rules and stuff. If there were, okay, the first courses, okay, were complete, okay, they were not done in silence. You were silent on day four, day six, and day eight. Women and men talked all the time to each other. You could smoke beaties during your course. Um, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't strict and stuff at that point, you know. And there were people who did probably, and there were people I know who did get high during the course or something. Mm-hmm. But Goenkaji sort of tolerated all of it for a while. 
Mm-hmm. It really didn't. But you know, it wasn't it wasn't this strict thing that you have now. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, he just Goenkaji just wanted to teach you. He just wanted to share with you. He just not teach you. He wanted to share and he wanted to give what he had to all of us. So he mm-hmm. was willing to put up with a lot. <laughs> oh, that's that's really beautiful. It's really really remarkable too, just to think of this conservative Hindu who grew up his whole life in Burma, was kicked out with a military dictatorship, learned a, a meditation outside of his own tradition, and then is bringing that back in his home country, which he didn't grow up in, to a counterculture movement that is just about as different to anything he could have imagined in, until that interaction. Yeah, yeah, but he was a remarkable person that way. His, his whole part of life was to share the Dhamma with people, you know, mm-hmm. and as Times went on, things obviously changed. It will go on. We can talk about later and stuff. But mm-hmm. in the very beginning, he was very tolerant of all of us. Um, pro, you know, and he, he told us later, you know, he, said he couldn't believe it. You know, and he had his wife with him. And, um, yeah. She wasn't there in the very beginning, but afterwards. And he also had Yadav, who, who was um, his secretary, who was with him the whole time. Mm-hmm. His sons, his, his sons uh, hired Yadav to be his secretary, and he traveled with him. Those early courses must have been wild too, because they're just you're make yeah. I mean, you're making some of it up as you go along, with not in terms of the the practice or the teachings, but in terms of the the structure and reciprocal for for and the 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 student that body that's coming in. Uh, there's no roadmap for any of that. Oh no, there, this is what people I I find that people fail to understand. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. That without Goenkaji, there was no thing of teaching these courses like they are. Everybody who's teaching courses in these 10-day periods, other teachers and other things, all of them pick this up from Goenkaji's way, okay? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and, you know, Menindra was teaching, Menindra didn't teach courses like this. He was teaching at the time, but he didn't teach like this. Nobody, and to order, and be able to order and sort of play this out, you know, he was the one who sort of figured out a way to do this, a way that would work, and he kept fine-tuning it as time went on but um without him there would be you know I, let's put this without him there wouldn't be much of a movement here in the states as far as i'm concerned oh i i totally agree and i'm i'm referring to uh, i'm referencing now this um line that gil fronsdale uh, wrote about the the way that meditation is thought of and he was saying that this um the just the mere imagery of the idea of a 10-day course has become so powerful that in 2023, it's almost hard to imagine a, a meditation experience outside of that because we're, we're almost by this point so conditioned by this being kind of the only reciprocal we can imagine. And I think it's, um, that's, that's kind of a more recent um, uh, thought or reflection on it. But I think going back to the era that you're describing, it's that this has become so commonplace and so understood within every aspect of like Western culture, as amazing as it is to say that, yes, I mean, sometimes we forget what came before. It doesn't seem like anything came before because that's how it always was. And Goen- there was no, there was no Damagiri then. There was no meditation centers. Okay. Uh-huh. And Goen- you know, we would go at Burmese Fiharas, one in Benares. The Benares one was very good. It was in between the bus station and the train station. So you could imagine, and there were 200 people in there <laughs> in a space that you couldn't imagine, you know? Yeah. And we didn't, you know, and, you know, when we, you sat in the hall, you didn't move. You know why? If you move, you hit the person next to you. <laughs> yeah. 
So it was a very different, uh, very different. And we, a lot of us went from one site to another. He taught at hotels and at um, different ashrams, wherever somebody would set up a thing, he would teach. But there weren't any centers. So things were, there wasn't any um, sort of big, he set up a trust in Bombay, but it really didn't do much except eventually buy Domagir, you know. Mm-hmm. And the students are, are, are they basically like half Indians and half hippies or how's that looking? Courses in both English and in Hindi. So separate courses? Yes. Oh, okay. So you're not sitting side by side Indians. You have one well, for Indians. There were a couple of Indians who did sit with us and mm-hmm. who travel around with us, um, who, who um, we became really close with. But for most of the time, the English courses were mostly English, and we could sit Hindi courses too. We sat, mm-hmm. I said, and those courses were mostly in Hindi. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. as Goenka's getting this off the ground, I, I, I actually I didn't realize that he was doing these. Um, kind of, for lack of a better word, segregated, you know, in terms of the Hindu for the Indians and English for everyone else. It was more language issues than anything else. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. But it makes me wonder if there became a difference in his style of, of delivering these courses to these different audiences. Yeah. He did. He made, he, he, okay, this is, he, 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 he wanted to make sure that the Indians would get better. We used to get milk at, nine o'clock at night in the first courses because he, he set up things to make it very easy for the Indians. He, he said the Indians were, you know, they had much, his, his line was the Indians had very good Sheila, but they didn't really want to work as hard. The Westerners had really bad Sheila, but they worked really hard. So, um, you know, so he did both of the, you know, he did them all over, you know, um, from Bombay to Madras to all over the country. And a lot of us went from one. And there was some famous, uh, there was an Indian movie star and some other people who, you know, did courses with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious and just staying for a moment in this phase of this, uh, I guess what I call like the experimentation phase where you you don't have centers, you don't have a roadmap, you're kind of refining things and looking and reflecting after each course to look at what went well and what you hadn't thought of that you now have to think of next course. And you're in the mix of all that sitting and then serving these courses as, as the, just the, the very nature of what a course is, is starting to take shape. What kind of comes to mind when you think of that, that creative process of trying to figure out, okay, what do I got? How do we have to deliver it? What, what's working? What's not? What, what do you remember from that stage of experimentation? It was very different then in the fact that everything was laid out. You And you, the only thing that you ser- did service as was managers of the courses, except for, except at the very end we started cooking. But they had cooks hired. And in those days, Goenkaji still didn't – you paid for the course, but you only paid the place that was having it for the food and the other stuff. Goenkaji still never took money. That that happened on the free – everything being free um, – no charge happened much later. Okay, so you know we just kept going. There were, uh, I there were some courses that were pretty wild, let's just say the least. Can you give us any examples? Okay, well, well, the the course in Benares was pretty crazy because the first couple of days they didn't have food, and the cooks mm-hmm. and they sent out to the. Um, Railroad station, we had like this vegetables and it seemed like they were soaked in motor oil, you know, oh. to eat. It was horrible. Um, 
And, you know, but somehow or another, the whole thing got in. The wildest course probably was uh, this course in Pratapkar, which was a little bit of some, um, an Indian gentleman built this um, meditation center for Gwenkaji somehow or another, which he never really used. So he invited him to come teach a course in Pratapkar. So we go to Pratapkar and... Uh, you look at the building, you looked at the meditation hall, and the roof was on an angle. Then not the side wall was on an angle. <laughs> we said, you can't sit in here. This thing could fall down. So mm -hmm. we had to get a tent to put there. Mm -hmm. They had all these, he built all these little like cells and stuff, but you really couldn't use them and they were in bed. So, and the, he built it in a hollow. So up on the road, um, the in, you could just stand on the road and look into where you were meditating. And Pratapkar was this out-of-the-way village. They had never seen Westerners much before. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, 150 Westerners descended upon this place. Goodness. So they were like, couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. So then um, what happened was um, the cooks quit the first day. <laughs> so all we had was this one cook who we knew from Benares. He was the uh, cook at the Burmese Vihar in Benares. Mm -hmm. So all of the Westerners together, there were about 12 or 13 of us, we became his apprentices. We made mm -hmm. japatis. We cooked the rice. We cooked the vegetables. This was the first time we, you know, that meditators actually did everything. Hmm. And um, Goenkaji, you know, and so the course went on like that. And it was just a little, this is, I caught one guy. I was I was sort of in charge of doing the kitchen stuff with with the uh, assistant. I I did rice, you know, for two hundred, mm -hmm. and um, there were tents all over the place. And I went to find somebody once in a in a cell, and it was a uh, French uh, French guy, and he was shooting morphine. Oh. So obviously he had to leave. Yeah. But I mean, this is the craziness that went on in some of these early courses. Yeah, yeah, and Goink is managing this all by himself. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, we had managed, you know, just with our assistants, you know, as managers and stuff, but all by himself. There was no other teachers or anything of that nature. He did everything. Hmm. I'm also curious about the discourses, just because this is such a hallmark of a Goenka 10-day course, at least. And I'm almost thinking of, like, how you hear about comedians, well, you know, yeah. go to these, like, smaller clubs and just try all these different routines. And then when they got it all figured out, then they'll do the HBO special or whatever. And we have these fully formulated discourses that I think are from 1990 or 1991 that um, that are the standard today. But I, 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 have, I would have a feeling that like during those years that you're describing, it's almost like his not, not only is he experimenting with courses, but he's also experimenting with discourses and jokes and, you know, rhythms and all of those things. So did you get a feel for like how he was trying different things and discourses and different courses? He did. He changed a couple of things here and there. And he would ask us if this was right. Is this the right wording? Is this the right phraseology? You know, is this, he, he used to, he, one thing that always sticks in my mind to change, it used to be, you know, hippies, you know, the word, he did this whole thing about freaks now. <laughs> yeah. It used to not be freaks. It uh -huh. was hippies. Uh -huh. But then the hippies sort of passed away and the freaks came. So he changed it. Mm -hmm. But he used to have a line about how these hippies came, you know, and, on this. And the discourses, they're, 
they've changed somewhat, but in overall, they're not really that far away from what he used to do. He just kept fine tuning it and getting better and better with it. Mm-hmm. He was scared in the beginning. He didn't feel his English was uh, was good enough to right. it. So I've heard that. But you know, he's they're, they're pretty much. Let's put it. They're they're not really very different. Hmm. Interesting. Little stories, little this or that, adding here or there. You know, but not not really um, much different. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, this with the Indian stuff is that his Hindi is very, very good and very classical, mm-hmm. and um, the d- discourses to the, in Hindi are different than the English discourses because mm-hmm. they're more aligned with that culture. Mm. Right. So, as we're still in this phase of before it's gotten out of India and it's uh, it's now becoming a very known thing on this hippie counterculture circuit that everyone is in, in this kind of open and connected environment you describe. People are gravitating towards it, trying it along with the other things they're trying of trekking and drugs and uh, other teachers and things like that. But then how does it, um, if we're at this point, where, what else can you say about this period that we're in? And then where does it start to move towards whatever the next phase is? Greatest period of my life. It was great, you know. I mean, it was wonderful. It was like sort of, you know, your teenage years, you know. Mm, <laughs> everything, so. everything was sort of fun and great, you know. And um, we just kept trying. We, you know, um, I mean, it just kept evolving, you know. I'll get uh, it changes. I guess the big changes sort of happened um, later, um, later on in like in like 1974 and on when a lot of us left India and went back to the States mm-hmm. and also um, Goenkaji um, got Damagiri. A big change also happened when a couple of people invited Mr. Hubbard to come to India. Mm-hmm. And in 1973, he came and started teaching courses. And um, at that point... Um, he went to Burma with some people and came back and he got very strict and all of a sudden there was silence on courses and other rules. And Kawenkaji got stricter after Hover came mm-hmm. and that was a turning point in things. And then when Hover went back to the States and we all came back, a lot of people did courses with him also. So you describe this as the most beautiful or precious time of your life. Can you put some more imagery to that to take listeners into what well, it felt like to be involved in something so special? Oh, well, after, well, so I went up to, well, it was, um, it was just very, free. after doing all these courses, um, I, I had to leave India for visa problems and went to Nepal and then I came back to India and I worked my way back up to Dalhousie. So in Dalhousie at that time, I met up with my old girlfriend there who was there with Vimla Taka, who was an Indian teacher at the time. I don't, most people probably haven't heard of her, but if Krishnamurti had a chief disciple, she was it. Mm-hmm. And she was also involved in the land gift movement there. So I got to spend a lot of time with her and she used to give talks at night. And all of a lot of us who were students of Moenkaji, um, would come and listen to her and stuff. And also, um, you know, so it was just like so personal and stuff. And the only thing, I, the biggest thing I'd say is I, if I wasn't such an arrogant idiot at the time, I would have got a lot more out of it. <laughs> what do you mean? 
Well, you know, after you meditate for a year or two, you think you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah. I, I was a little bit too. Uh, you know, That's true. Really gain. I could have gained a lot more from being with her. That's what I say. But she was. She. You know, they had no. Um, she was of the Krishnamurti, you know, no groups, no this. She's yeah. living in Mount Abu, but she was a very, very special person. Mm, how so? Um, just her whole presence. And um, she she was politically active and then became met more into meditative. I don't know if people know about the, uh, it was the land gift movement with mm-hmm. Vinod Bhave. Mm-hmm. People, he was sort of like, like a contemporary of Gandhi, you know. Um, he walked around India and this group of people and they would get people to give land to him and then he would redistribute it to poorer people. Hmm. Um, you know, so she was involved in that and then she was involved with Christian. She just had a, a view of, you know, she was just an unbelievable. She, I think her books are still out, but, um, but she, you know, she wanted you to meditate, do yoga in this, but she didn't have a technique and she didn't have a, this. She said, you need to find ways that are good for you. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of you know the same way Krishnamurti you know was yeah right so she was uh so that was a uh, and you know Joseph in uh, okay, up in uh so up in Delhousie at that time we all had little we all rented houses and lived in houses Joseph was up there Sharon myself Barry Lapping oh a bunch of people we all had these places and we all spent sort of the uh, you know the hot season up there. Mm-hmm. And then Gawenkaji came up to teach a course, and um, everybody would go and do the course. And then mm-hmm. after that, people would start going down to the plains uh, or go someplace else wait, when it got cooler. And uh, so, so it, mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, and he, he taught like only one course that year, and then he left. And then I had a choice of what to do after he left. And I had all these different choices to do. I said, well, should I go to Mount Abu? Should I go and get you a teaching course in Darjeeling? And I said, oh, maybe I should go back to Bodh Gaya. So mm-hmm. I decided to go back to Bodh Gaya at that time. And um, I was stayed at the Gandhi Ashram there. It's August in Bodh Gaya, which is not exactly what you would call seasonal, the uh, big season for it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I lived at the Gandhi Ashram there next door to Manindra. And um, I was there for months and Menindra, I studied Abhidhamma with Menindra and um, we used to talk every day about things and I would do self courses and I walked to the temple at night, and, you know, and there were hardly anybody there, you know, one or two Westerners would show up. So mm-hmm. it was just a great time of my life there too. Was, you know, I just had so many opportunities, you know, I'm so I feel very grateful for being able to have all these opportunities. And tell us a bit about Munindra. If Gwenko was your father, Munindra was your mother. <laughs> he was nice. He was quiet and nice. Munindra was was fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. he was um he was very close to Gwenko. The two of them were very close to each other when Gwenko came. Munindra would go over there, sit with them. They would always talk. Munindra Munindra taught. Like if you wanted to study with Meninger at the time, you would go sit, you know, he'd tell you what to do and you'd do it, and, you know, we'd come by and talk to you and do things like that. But he was very scholarly also and very, very uh, quiet. He was all dressed in his whites. He was Anagarika, 
which is a non-monk monk for all this. And he, you know, he was just, just the kindest, nicest, but funny, funny in a, in a different ways. Um, and he said, he was, just, you know, he used to, if you go into the bazaar with him, he would argue, oh, as he would say, bargain with the bazaar people mm-hmm. back and forth for a paisa and this, you know, and go back and, you know, and the guy wanted, you know, and it was like over dot nickels, you know, mm-hmm. and as, as Westerners, we couldn't really believe it. Meninja would say to him, he says, you know, um, life is to be lived simple, not to be a simpleton. You yeah. Know? You know, you know, and he says, um, so he would bargain all the time with people. It was quite funny, um, but it was him. It wasn't like putting on airs, you know, mm. and I mean, every you, you would love shopping with him because it was always quite an experience, you know, he, and the other, the other thing is, so I used to be sitting in the morning, and Menindra was like a door or so away from me, you know, so you could hear everything. Mm-hmm. And I had limited knowledge of Hindi, like I knew what milkmaid and word was dude, and I could know what uh, the water, the word for water was pani. So the milk guy would come and bring milk for Menindra in this mm-hmm. big container every day, and then he would pour it out as he would come. Meninja would argue with him. Meninja had a, what do you call it, a hydrometer, hydrometer or something. He had a testing kit so he mm-hmm. could test the amount of water in the milk. <laughs> so he would argue with him for like on and on. And I'd be sitting there and I'm saying, will you stop already? You know? <laughs> and he would be arguing back and forth like half, you know, pani, other dude, back and forth, back and forth. It was, you know, and, and so he was very, you know, he was very real in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and um, but very simple. He was not the he was not the powerful figure Bhuvanakji was in a sense. Hmm. But very kind, sweet, and you know I would you know I would read. He gave me Abhidhamma books. I would read them, and then every day I would go over there, and um, I would ask him questions, and he would explain things to me about um, what this means and what this means and that you know, which was you know. At the time, was you know quite uh, you know I sort of developed the knowledge which later on we can get into. I sort of gave up, but um, and also I could you know um, I could go over to the temple every night, sit under the tree, or sit in the temple, you know. And the ashram that we lived in, the Gandhi ashram, was an ashram from um, the Noba's time. It was um, a land grant ashram. And they would train Bihar, where Bodh Gaya is, is the poorest state in India. And they would go out and they would teach um, the women sort of um, nursing things. And they would teach the, um, the the boys how to fix pumps and stuff. So they had schools out there. In fact, Gawenki taught the first children's course at one of these schools. Mm-hmm. He was very close to the person who ran the place, which was Dwoko, who was... Who was um, you would call a social justice person for sure, as he mm-hmm. was. You know, he he was a, a great, a really great sort of um, leader for social justice and trying to get people involved in stuff. So, so it was a combination of things. Right. So, as you're painting a picture, transitioning from just kind of um, arriving in India, the the, the whole experience, uh, overwhelming of 
what the country represents and the, the people that are coming from this countercultural movement and then starting to experiment with Goenka. And you're now describing transitioning into this phase of the those people in the community, some of the names that you mentioned, uh, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and Barry Lapping, among others, certainly that are are not just taking a course here or there or having, as, as Goenka says on the discourse, uh, the Guanca trip, but are actually starting to settle a bit. I mean, not permanently, obviously, they're in India, but starting to just kind of go through the rhythms of living ongoing in the, in India, knowing where to go with the different climatic systems and the different course offerings and, and stuff like that. And so as this movement is kind of transitioning from being something more transient and adventurous and kind of wandering around to something where people at least a little bit more starting to plan their lives around in, in terms of where they where they go and what they're studying and what they're doing, what shifts started to happen with uh, what was happening within the community, within the students and within the teachings and courses? There were just people who decided they, this is really, you know, this is for me. This is, I, I really need, you know, this. And you realize that you wanted to continue this either now or for your whole life, you know. And um, so you started, you know, your whole life started revolving around courses and going places where you could meditate and just changing your, you know, the way your whole life is at that time. And then it happened a year or two into things, you know, after, after you saw other things and you decided, yeah, this is really what I want to do. And, you know, a lot of us just, a lot of us just stuck together and knew what, you know, you knew what was doing and you just kept, you know, and it was a similar group of people, you know, who were around and many of us just went from one course to another and, you know, it's just, it just happened sort of organically, you know, it wasn't like you said anything different. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting then projecting many years in the future among this, this tight knit and open group that you describe, some of them go on to be important um, uh, figures within the Goenka movement in terms of what they do and being teachers and, um, and how they carry the teachings back. Some of them become very important and famous teachers outside of the Goenka movement, like Joseph or Sharon or others. Uh, others probably, uh, you have no record of and just disappeared into the other. So it just, uh, the, the, at that time you're all together and all, all practicing in this eager and, and, and close ways. But then the trajectories, uh, differs, uh, over time as the movement well, starts to spread. We, we've stayed friends, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, Joseph, we have, uh, we have at least once a year, Joseph and I have lunch together and Barry, you know, and see Sharon, and, you know, we stayed friends over the years, you know, it's not, it's just, maybe we had just slightly different views of things, you know, I don't look at things as separate as other people look at it. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, Can you say more about that? Yeah. I, you know, everybody should do what they feel the best with, you know, not, nothing is better or worse than the other thing. If you want to practice in a certain way, then you should practice there, but you should practice there, you know? Um, but there's no condemning or anything. There's no, you know, there's no one particular technique that does everything for everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it just doesn't work that way. You know, there, there is the thing that you have to follow the actual teachings of the Buddha, mm -hmm. but as far as one particular technique, there are other techniques. Obviously, in Burma, there's hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. Here's the same thing, you know. If you're comfortable with it 
and, and this is something that's for you, then you should do it, you know, but you don't have to say anything bad about the other ones. Mm. Or if you've done one and then you leave, you don't have to say bad things. You left because it didn't work for you. That doesn't mean the technique or the group or the community is bad. You know? Right. That's the part that sort of gets me to hear. Right, right. It does make me think, though, that in at least the modern take-home message of um, that 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 you find among many in the Goenka organization today, is that this is the only technique. It is the pure and pristine technique, and the only one that goes back to what the Buddha actually taught. And this does create a certain kind of narrowing and insular. And maybe people who think that way are a little confused. Oh, right. You know? Right. I, I don't. Let's put it this way. I don't figure. I don't. I mean, I only practice this technique. I do it. I've been very close to Goenka over the years. I do long courses. I was an assistant teacher. I no longer am. I don't feel, you know, um, I feel, yes, this is a, this is a technique that can take me to as far as I can go, but I don't feel anything that it's the one and only. I think that gets, I think it somewhat gets confused and, um, I think some of the ways things got passed on make some people think that way. I always was like, the only reason I would say is when you don't have confidence in what you're doing, you either put down other things or say that this is the best. Because if you didn't think this was the best, you wouldn't do it. You would do something sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's my question then is that um, if uh, looking back at, how the the teachings and the technique were held at that time versus what we're seeing today. And you kind of already answered that or alluded to an answer that there was some, that, that, that comes from something in the way that this started to get passed down. So let's go there. Where did you start to see those changes and how, and uh, in, in how it did become passed down in a way that perhaps led to some of the, the, the sentiments that some people hold today? Well, I, it's sort of hard to, you know, I think people just, you know, I, I, it, there's so many issues involved in it, you know, um, with that, you know, I don't find that certain, I mean, it's more, uh, how do we, how do you say it without becoming part of it, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you say this without criticizing, you know? Mm-hmm. I just feel that people should just, you know, be, um, you know, open and fine and be confident in what they're doing and continue to do what they do. And mm -hmm. yes, Goenkaji, Goenkaji also, you have to realize is he, his background was somewhat different, you know, it mm -hmm. wasn't, he wasn't born a Buddhist, he was born a staunch Hindu. Mm -hmm. so some of his conditioning is somewhat different, you know, and also, you know, there's somewhat of the game of telephone, you know. Uh, you know, you say something, and by the time it gets to the fifth people, it's completely confusing. And Goenkaji yeah. might have said something, and somebody took it one way and said this and said that, and things have changed quite a bit, you know? Um, I don't know. Goenkaji and Meninja are very close. There was no animosity between them. Um, I think it's more students and other people who have animosity towards other people. And, you know, um, I don't see anything being gained by it. Right. Well, those are two really important points. I mean, one, looking at the particular conditioning of the teacher, which led to frame things in certain ways, and any you know, everyone has their own conditioning, so it's going to come out in some way. And the second is this game of telephone. So if we could just look at both of those for a moment. And in what ways did you see the particular 
conditioning of Goenka starting to frame and how he was teaching or, or, um, or, uh, or I mean, it's just some of the strictness on Sheila really is goes back to his Hindu roots. You know, he's very, um, very, um, strong on that part of things. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, um, and just other, you know, it's, it's hard to pinpoint exact types of things, but he was very, you know, um, there's a great deal of purity in it, you know, in, in um, what he tries to do. He's trying to keep things pure in his mind. Mm-hmm. And sometimes maybe he was a little stricter than was necessary. I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, how, how do you think he defined purity? What do, you, what do you think pure meant for him? Well, he didn't want you to mix techniques. From mm-hmm. his point of view, if you, if you did a technique, you should do that technique. Mm-hmm. You have a chance to work, to do it. Don't mix. Don't go from one place to another. You know, uh, nobody's, you know, just keep practicing until you have, you know, achieved the goal, you know, in this technique. If you don't feel that this technique is working for you, well, then leave the technique and go someplace else. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you want to maintain the purity of a technique because even though techniques might not be conflicting, certain things of, of techniques can conflict with each other. You know, if you, you know, if you tell somebody to do something a certain way in certain techniques, it's conflicting with the way somebody's teaching in another technique. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's what he, you know, he wanted, he knew, he knew that this technique worked for him and he wanted to keep the, that type of purity with it. Okay. Um, and I think some ways he gets misunderstood by that. Yeah, and that leads to the second part where there's this game of telephone, and you just said sometimes he gets misunderstood. So, yeah. in what ways did the game of telephone lead to a misunderstanding of his intended I, message? I mean, I just hear people say things which I can't believe. <laughs> like what, for example? I can't even remember. But I mean, I was able to. I was able to spend quite a bit of time with Wenkaji alone, and with you know, and this, and talk with him mm-hmm. directly, and. I hear him, you know, and I go by that. I hear other people telling me things. They said, oh, Goenkaji said this. And it was just completely contradictory. I can't really think of things right offhand. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, it, 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 it's not always, <laughs> not always, you know, it's not always been passed down without, and I'm sure it's the same way from the Buddha. Uh-huh. Right? Do you think that everything that people have said in Buddhism from 2,500 years ago has passed down in purity? I don't think so. Hmm. And so that leaves an interesting question of what do you do when you have a spiritual teacher, whether it's Goenka or Ubekin or, or the Buddha, and you start to have generations removed from that. And this is an age-old question that goes far beyond Buddhism of to, to what degree do you figure out how strict and quote unquote pure you have to be in trying to adhere to exactly what was said by that particular person in their time and place. And to what degree can you take as what they said to inspiration to then mold it and frame it to the current time and place that you're living? Well, there's the basics of things, which you need to keep. And then there's all the other stuff, you know, I mean, uh, it, it, it's hard to answer, but I mean, okay. The basics of Sheila Samadhi Panya, you have to keep that part. There's all this other stuff that might be um, institutionalized. There's the practice and there's an institutionalizing of it, okay? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I say the practice, you have to keep pure. The institutionalizing of it, eh, not so much, you know. Mm-hmm. And everybody has to figure it out themselves in a sense, you know. I mean, you can't tell people, you know, different things. Mm-hmm. Mm. So going back to where we left off in this trajectory, you, you were um, you were describing this this circle of Westerners in India who were becoming more serious, kind of planning their lives around this, starting to have this inkling of an idea, as you mentioned, of, huh, this is really good. Maybe I should do more than one course and do it for an extended period of time. Maybe I should do it for life. And so this, this kernel of ideas starting to take place, what happens after that? Oh, a lot of us did it, you know, Mm -hmm. and kept doing it. We kept doing it. Um, And, uh, you know, and then what you see now in America is a lot of us who did do that and came back from it, you know, um, and did help each other, you know, establish the techniques here in this, you know, in America and in the world, you know, um, I'll tell you one. Okay. So this, kind of, all right. I'm a little hesitant to talk about, I will though. Okay. Is, um, years ago, um, in 1974, Goenkaji did a self course in Bodhgaya, which he did all the time, and a group of us, and he let people sit with him in the self-course. And after the self-course, we went to the temple, the last night of the self-course, and we'd sit at the temple. And we all sat at the temple, and then he, before this, he told, I don't remember, maybe it was 15 of us, that um, after everybody leaves, you people should stay, we're going to stay the whole night. Okay? So... There's 15 of us were staying the whole night with Goenkaji sitting at the temple. We'd go from the tree to the other rooms to other different places in the temple. And at the end, oh, maybe it's the middle, I don't really remember. He says, um, he says, we can do a vow if you would want to. And the vow would be to serve him and the Dhamma for the rest of your life. So 15 of these people all took the vows. Um, and... How I can recollect, there's only two of us who have kept them since then. And that was 50 years ago. Hmm. And, uh, the two of, yeah, and there were other people who were there who, um, who went in different directions. But that sort of goes in line with this. And the two of them were myself and Barry. Hmm. And what does that mean to you that it was only two that? that Nothing. It means that these two people decided, to, you know, it's just how life is, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, some people decide and they stick to something and other people don't. Mm-hmm. Nothing, you know, but I felt for myself, you know, um, I made, I, I basically am a, I guess I have a lot of loyalty. I guess I made a commitment and I don't see any reason not to keep it. Right, right, right. You know, and I tried to keep it through my whole life, you know, and that was, that, that vow was 50 years ago. Wow, that's beautiful. I mean, that's not unlike a marriage vow and just a different type of relationship. Yeah, it actually worked better than the marriage. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Wow, that's, um, that's really something. So, um, so how did it start to take off? How, uh, as... Uh, we came back to, you know, I think really when things started taking off, we had left India and come back to America. Um, so... Joseph left first. He had enough of India. After a while, India puts a real taxing on your body. Mm-hmm. Um, the food is not high in, pro, in uh, nutrients, to say the least. And so everybody sort of got tired of it and all decided they would, you know, it was time to come back. Some of us had been on and off there from 71 to 74 or even before that, you know. So it was a long time. So um, 
quickest in the spring of 1974, we started coming back. I flew back with Sharon, and Joseph was back before this. And we all sort of came back together. Barry came back. A lot of us just different ways. We all came back to there. And uh, Mr. Hover was starting to teach a little bit then. So we did courses with Mr. Hover. And we were sort of lost, <laughs> not knowing what to do. Hmm. And Joseph bumped into Ramdas in California. Mm-hmm. And they asked him, Joseph, and Ramdas asked Joseph, he was teaching at Naropa at this course that uh, Ramdas was teaching. And he asked Joseph if he would teach um, a meditation segment of it. And Joseph said yes. So he went, he went out in Boulder that summer. I was hitchhiking. I was going to go to Boston. Guy picked me up, said he was going to Cincinnati. So I said, oh, that's fine. And I went to Boulder and I lived with Joseph. And then I stopped and saw Jackie Schwartz too on the way. And then Sharon decided to come out to Boulder. And Joseph was a huge hit in Boulder. People mm-hmm. loved him. He was by far the biggest, you know, out of all of the things that Ramdas did, he was by far um, the biggest draw there of, you know, people in that seminar. What do you think resonated so much about what he did? He was great. <laughs> he could sp- he he could explain Dhamma, and it was simple. And not many people at that point had heard of Theravadan Dhamma, which in my mind was simpler and more straightforward than than the Hindu things that um, Ramdas would talk about and the Tibetan Buddhist uh, things of Trungpa. So many people picked up on that. At the same time, oh Jack came. Jack was teaching out there. That was the first time Joseph and Jack met. Jack Cornfield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he had a little course on Theravada Buddhism. And so I was living in Joseph's apartment with him for the first week and hanging out there. And at that's also the same time. As, so Joseph got a big following there. And at the same point, um, this other friend of ours, Wes Nisker, um, set up a course for Joseph to teach, a 30-day course in... Um, in the Sequoia National Forest in October or September. I think it was September. So a lot of those people decided that they wanted to do the course. So all of a sudden, Joseph had a course, and we all went out there with him. And it was a 30-day course, and it was really the first course. And Sharon taught with him. It was the first real course that, um, you know, was, was Joseph did. And at that same point, Mr. Hubbard was teaching courses. So all of a sudden... In America, there was Joseph teaching courses and Mr. Hubbard teaching courses. And, you know, all of a sudden people were, you know, wanting to do these things. Mm. We should also remind here, though, that when, because I think there's a way to hear this, that, you know, Joseph Goldstein was teaching courses, Robert Hubbard was teaching courses. And in 2023, there's a way to think about this in terms of how we think of meditation courses today. But just to go back to the point that you made at the start of our conversation, where, the idea of a of a intensive meditation silent retreat, while Goenka didn't start that, obviously, you know, Ubakin was doing it, and there's probably you can find some precedent for it. What he did in formulating what the 10-day course was, it it standardized and opened up possibilities. And so it probably wouldn't be incorrect to say that these courses, these experiments, you could even say, because they're also formulating what they're doing that Hover and Goldstein and some of the others are putting together, that that's still drawing so much from the the, the format that Goenka laid down before them. Would that be fair to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hover, Hover sort of learned all of things from Goenka. And Joseph... Did all these courses with Gwenkaji. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, 
at some point, Joseph, you know, he studied a lot with Goenkaji and with Meninger. Meninger um, pushed him to do courses with Goenkaji. Mm-hmm. Meninger was, Goen- was Joseph's main teacher. Right. But, but you know, it, 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 you know, Joseph sort of got a lot of the, you know, things. And a lot of the courses that Joseph taught in the beginning, a lot of them were filled with people from Goenkaji, you know, who had sat with Goenkaji. Because where were you going to get people anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. And how did Goenka take that, that a lot of his students were now going to learn from Joseph Goldstein? Well, he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't 100% behind it, you know, but he mm. didn't, you know. I mean, in his ways at that point, he didn't really feel a lot of us were ready to teach. Mm-hmm. But he also knew that Joseph was not his student per se. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't um, negative to him. Mm, but, right. Yeah, I mean... Right. But then Joseph taught more courses as time went on, and, and I, I managed all of I managed most of Joseph's first courses and helped set them up. People would set them up, and I would come in and do all the sort of work that was necessary to get done, you know, between the cooking, managing it, and stuff. And then, so I was very involved with Joseph and Sharon at that time. Mm, right. How did those go? Went great, <laughs> good time, you know. It went, you know, it was remarkable. It took off, you know. And we also had a little Dhamma house in Santa Cruz called the Dhamma Vihara at the time. So a friend of Joseph lent it to us, and we had self courses and other stuff there. And um, so I was in California at the time, and then um, uh, they flew me out to Great Barrington to run the first course Joseph and Jack did together there. So, so I was pretty much involved, in, and I did. I also managed some courses for Mister Hover at the time. So I was sort of in the first level of like doing a lot of this stuff. Mm, and this is before Goenka had brought his courses to America. Well, Hover was Goenka at that point. I see. So Hover was was acting Hover as a, was a proxy. Mm-hmm. Hover was a a student of Ubakin also. Right. And at that point, you know, he was teaching, and Goenka she said, "Listen to Mister Hover in America." Now, you mm-hmm. couldn't find two more opposite people if you tried. <laughs> How so? How was Robert Hover? <laughs> Hover was like really up strong, uptight, like engineer type of guy, you know. And Goenkaji was like, you know, pretty loose in a lot of ways and smiling and, you know, happy and powerful and just much different. I heard one Hover student explain to me that for every time that Goenka references Anicca or impermanence, that hover instead references dukkha or suffering. No, he did it. He, yeah, he did that. He also did, used to do a Nietzsche all the time. But he would like, he was like an army drill sergeant. <laughs> yeah, he was just a different person, you know? It was just, uh, he was very uh, strict. He was actually very helpful in a lot of ways because, you know, Gwenkaji was not very strict in the beginning. Hover was very strict about no. sitting and silence and all of this courses, you know. He, he, he at one point put timers on, you know, uh, all of you want to sit, uh, you know, an Adi time for an hour, there'll be a buzzer, there'll be a buzzer in an hour and a half, there'll be a buzzer at two hours, there'll be a buzzer at two and a half, and a buzzer at three. Mm-hmm. I'm saying to myself, you're crazy, you know. <laughs> I'll take the buzzer at one, that'll be the end, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was three-hour Adi times. Yeah, I mean, you know, ridiculous, but, you know. Yeah. I, don't know. I think he was the only one left in there by then, you know. 
I, I did t- the same hover student I'm thinking of that I uh, that I spoke to. Um, he told me that uh, as a new student, he was making himself sit those three hours and he was coming out successful, but had absolutely zero Dhamma understanding, was just right. just um, stealing himself to be able to manage those three hours. Yeah, yeah. But he, you know, uh, but, you know, Hover, uh, you know, all of these people, Hover and Coleman and, and Dennison were sort of around for a while. There was a period. I mean, there were all these little periods of time, you know, mm-hmm. that people were involved and then not, you know. Mm-hmm. And involved in being a part of Goenka's emerging mission yeah. or kind of yeah. their own yeah. well, take uh, on it? Yeah, involved with Goenkaji's, you know, thing. And then mm. sort of left or did this or did that. Same with, you know, Sayama. Mm. So I wonder if one of the reasons that some of these Western teachers were more involved at the time was that Goenka simply wasn't wasn't coming to, wasn't in the West, and was still trying to devise how this movement would take shape going forward and thought perhaps that he would be more on the Asian Indian side of things and these Western teachers would take their countries? That was some of it, but a big part of it was they were students of Ubakin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they were not somebody he appointed. Yeah. You know, he had such great faith in Ubakin. If Ubakin said it was all right, it was all right, you know. So then how does this teaching start to take off as different teachers are experimenting with different formats related to Goenka more or less, but students of Ubakan, how does it move from that point? Well, they were, I mean, then they would, you know, Hubber was going all over the world too. Mm-hmm. Hubber went to Europe, Hubber went to um, Australia, you know, so a lot of that was coming. And then at that particular time, um, Goenkaji in 75 or so, so they were starting Damagiri. So Goenkaji was staying in India. His main function was to try to get this meditation center built and mm-hmm. off the ground. Mm-hmm. So he was there and people, and all, we, you would come and sit at Damagiri, you know, so, and then people would go back. So there were sort of places that they could go when they got back and do a course with Mr. Harbor or Coleman or somebody, you know, so, so that, that period was sort of like that, you know. And it, you know, it was you know there wasn't like some exploding moment. It was incremental in a sense, mm-hmm. right? And this is also being done in at the same time that you have other concurrent teachings happening, like Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon yeah. Salzberg. We we haven't yet talked about. I don't know how much this intersects your own story, but we haven't yet talked about other traditions entirely, like the Mahasi or Rupandita or Ajahn Shah. I was one of the people who helped start Barry. Okay? I was on the first board. But I mean, that was at this particular time in 76, but, you know, so I, it, well, let me, let me, before that, I was very, you know, so I was doing a lot of courses for Joseph, Mr. Hover, I, you know, Jack, any, you know, so I, I managed a lot of courses and it was fine then at that point, you know, and then, then I, um, I was, was with my wife, who was also a student of Goenkaji at the time, and we decided to drive back out to, um, drive to Massachusetts because she'd never been on the East Coast. So we drove out to visit friends of ours, Eric Lerner, um, and we wound up in Congo. Oh, Eric, Eric Lerner, he's the, he wrote the, the book about. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Eric was living at what we, they used to call a Nietzsche farm, you know. Mm-hmm. Where we wound up living, and, um, and that's where, and Stephen Schwartz's other people, so... Um, we all, so I, we wound up moving out to, um, Western Mass 
and we bought a house and we were living there and um, Eric was there and we then, way before this was, a, Sharon and I were once talking, he said, you know, it's really terrible for us to keep moving around. Why don't we get a place and we can be in one place and people could come to us and not have to move around. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the ways we thought about Barry, you know. And Barry was sort of designed in in the very beginning mentally to be like the Burmese Vihara, where a place where teachers could come and go and keep come and go. It was never meant to be anybody's um, center. It was a center for all different traditions. Right. So, um, so when we were out there for a while, so then Eric and Richard Cohn, they were, we were looking for a place. They found that they found that they found IMS in, um, and we were able to put it together. And the first board was Eric, myself, Lila, my wife. Um, Richard Cohen and Stephen Schwartz, mm-hmm. and it was and one of and we had Joseph taught courses there. Um, Jack did, and Mr. Hubber actually is one of the biggest draws there. Hmm. Why? Because there were Goenkaji students who there were much more Goenkaji students than any other students. When this was before there was a Goenka Center. Yes, Goenkaji right. Center was in 1982. Mm-hmm. And what year are we talking about here? 1976. Okay, so this is this is some years before. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and you know, so um, we started at that same time. Lila got pregnant. I had wound up with a kid. I didn't see eye to eye exactly how things were going at Barry. So I no longer was on the board, but I still was friends with these people, and I still I sat there a couple of times. But you know, um, but I was you know, I was one of the original people who helped you know figure out a lot of it and also um, help start it. And so were you also involved with the visits to America by Ajahn Chah and Mahasi Seda? I, I, I saw Ajahn Chah. I wasn't involved in that mm-hmm. particular thing, but Ajahn Chah came and stayed in Conway when we were out there mm-hmm. um, at, outside the little cabin we had. So I got to see them. You know, I got to meet him and hang around with him for a while. I guess that was like 1979 or so. Mm-hmm. I wasn't that, I mean, by that time, I was already on my second child. So from 76 to 79, I was not that much involved in stuff. Mm-hmm. Be, I, mean, I would sit, I would just be hopeful to get a sit-in. Um, not many people at that time had kids. I see. Um, so I wasn't that involved, but, you know, in, in that particular time. So you were taking a bit of a backseat to Dhamma during that period as you no, had family. Doing, uh, well, I was doing my uh, householder life, you know. Uh, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. The, the the household life. I, became didn't long. I got back into it pretty quick again. So for a couple of years, I did that. And, back, you know, and then eventually, you know, uh, Hubbard, Hubbard was not able to teach. So Joseph and Jack and then all, all that group, they, they sort of took over the whole sort of thing in a sense. Why was Hover not able to teach? Well, he did things that we don't need. To, he was no longer sort of, uh, she, there were some issues, let's put it that way. Some ethical know. violations, we could say. Ethical things that he no longer, yeah. so Goenka, he was no longer, once he was not, once he was out of Goenkaji's orbit, there was no demand for him. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, because most of the people were Goenkaji students or whatever. So there's very little demand there, and then eventually he stopped teaching. Mm, right, right. 
and uh, I liked Hopper. He was really, he was a nice, nice enough guy and stuff, you know. And uh, so that was so that you know, nineteen seventy six. Barry started hover taught hover taught courses. They taught courses, and you know, I was sort of you know. Yeah, I had just slightly different views, let's put it that way. Well, some of them financially and others, you know. But, you know, it's a great place, wonderful, it's done a, I don't agree with it, but it's, you know, so many people got whatever they could get out of things, Dhamma, you know. So, you know, it, it worked out well. Like, Joseph invited me back for the 40th anniversary thing, so I came, hmm. visited, but, you know, it just, it, at that point, I had so many things in my life going on, you know, I mean... You know, wife, two kids, family. I wasn't that, you know, involved anyway. Mm -hmm. So it naturally came. And um, and I'd been in contact with Goenkaji. And he said, just let it just let it organically happen. And it organically happened. And I was no longer involved. So Right, right. And I guess that was also a period where, I mean, I mean it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this before because you have these different Dhamma initiatives taking off in America. Some of them indirectly related to Goenkaji, some directly related, and but he's actually not here yet doing anything. 1979, he came to Montreal. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people went up and he taught in England and in France. And then in 1980, he taught in California and this. And in 1981, he taught in Massachusetts. It was a course right by here in Goshen. And um, that was the first course that went outside of courses at the center that was um, done only on Donna. Mm, so that was kind of a new way to experiment. Yeah, and it's funny because there was this old, there's another person who was involved in a lot of things. When I told him about it, he said, "It's America. If you give something for free, people don't think it's worth anything." Mm. Uh, we proved him wrong. So, mm. so that was, a, and it was important to try to make sure that this course worked. Because if this course didn't work, then nothing yeah. better wasn't going to happen. So yeah. we had a course in Goshen. I think there were close to 200 people. And um, at that time, Goenkaji had cancellation and stuff. So I live, um, he came and stayed with us for about a week afterwards. And um, we went looking for centers. Oh, that soon. Oh yeah. <laughs> so right, right after the course that yeah. you knew it. Yeah. Well, he wanted to have centers here and stuff. Um, and, uh, we found something, the deal fell through and the next year he came again. Um, that, and we went looking again and then we found the center in 1982. Mm, I, you know, that's funny. Cause I, before hearing the story and hearing your involvement on, in all of this, when I first became interested in meditation and Buddhism in the West quite some time ago, I remember kind of being a bit surprised that two of the most important meditation centers in the country were just both happened to be in Western Mass, not very far from each other. And I was That's just, we were living here. <laughs> right? I mean, you're the missing connection there. I just, I thought, what a bit of serendipity. How can, I used to laugh and think like, oh, I wonder if they like play, you know, um, uh, Frisbee or something on the weekends, <laughs> you know, one, yeah, one center right. against the other or something. People started Barry also, who I was living with, uh, Stephen and Eric. We all lived there first. And actually, it's funny, one of the first courses Mr. Hover taught was also in Western Mass. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, you know, and one of the other early locations, which as I started to get more involved in the Guenca tradition, when I saw this, it nearly knocked my socks off, is um, I uh, my I, I don't exactly have one hometown, but if there's yeah. one place that is truly my hometown in my heart where I did spend most of my formative years, it's a very small town in Northern California that doesn't even have a stoplight called Occidental. And yeah, yeah, I was there. I was, yes, I was when I, I was in rural countryside Japan flipping through a book and reading the different courses that Goenka had done. And when I saw Occidental California, I just, I, I was just speechless because yeah. I mean, that's even people in San Francisco don't know where Occidental is. There was a small center there for a while. Mm, so, so tell me about that. This is a story. Close I, know, to my I, heart. I, I just remember it a little. I went to visit Norm there, but um, and there was a little center there, but you know, the, um, I don't really, you know, I was more, I'm more involved here than there. So yeah. Yeah. I don't want, I don't like to say things that I don't know. Sure. I can make up a great story if you want. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I, I, I love, uh, I, I'm, I'm far from Occidental now in terms of yeah. uh, time and distance, but it's still always in my heart. Yeah. But no, Shelburne Falls, Barry, I mean, really, you know, mm. not exactly booming metropolitan areas. You know? Right. Yeah. And becoming a hub of this Buddhist activity that's taking place. And that's largely because you settled there. Well, there were other people here, and we all came. There were other, sure. just a group of us, you know, and just stayed here and stuff. So, yeah, but. right. And so that first that that course he did in Western Mass, that first course, that was really the impetus to seeing that this could really be something that you can find that you can call your own. Well, he he, he was always looking to start a center, and he felt you know that it could work here. You know, because we went around and looked things. He had confidence, you know, that we could put it together. Um, I also, I also kind of persuaded him on different levels. <laughs> mm, <laughs> as per- as could, persuaded know. him in terms of location? Yeah, yes. You know, it's a great location. Close to New York, close to Boston, not far mm. from Montreal, you know. Land's not expensive, you know. Da, 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 you know so so we, right. went, we, we, we went around looking at a lot of places, you know. And and this was also before the famous split with Mother Sayama at IMC no, in 1982. No, this was right afterwards. Oh, this was after. So how how did that impact the way that he was looking that's at this? That's why he. That's what I think. That, you know, he wanted to do something. He was done. He was going to do everything on his own now. You know, so. Mm-hmm. And how did that? Because you knew him so much before that split, when he was really still part of that mission, and then obviously everything he did after. How. What, what what impact did that split have on him, you know, personally, emotionally, and then as a teacher with a mission? He just took off, you know. I mean, personally, emotionally, I couldn't answer. I never showed. It, it never affected him. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, I talk, you know, I, I had some conversations which were personal between it, which I'm not going to talk about, whatever. But he was not. Let's put it this way. He was the same Goenkaji afterwards. But I think he felt somewhat that he could now just do what he felt was he wanted to do in the way mm-hmm. he wanted to do it. Mm, so it freed him in a way. It freed him in a way to do it. And part of the thing of not charging was a big part of it. You know. And how about as Goenkaji was starting his mission and IMS was also in its early years and Jack and Sharon and, um, and Joseph were also 
beginning their teaching and, and Goenka's coming to America? What is, and probably other traditions and teachers I'm leaving off as well that were getting off the ground then as well. Um, this is all kind of the start of, I don't want to say American Buddhism because you had many touches before that, but certainly uh, uh, maybe American Buddhist meditation uh, or in a more structured and formulaic way is really burgeoning at this time. What was the relations between these different traditions and teachers and some of whom were teachers that were former students what what was the relation among them as this was all taking off from the ground i guess there was not much of a relationship i mean a lot of people say things back and forth but you know there i mean when goenkaji finally was here joseph and sharon and other people came to visit him when he was at the center and stuff goenkaji never visited barry i i don't know the exact i don't think he wanted to, i you know, part of him is he doesn't want, you know, maybe, maybe he was concerned that they would use a visit of his there or whatever. I don't know the exact answer to that. But, you know, he didn't. He, they came to him. Also, he's a teacher. They were still students to him, even if they were teachers. Mm -hmm. But he never, you know, he never. They came to visit him in um, Shelburne a couple of times. And mm -hmm. I arranged for Sharon, and Sharon to meet him a couple of times when he was in New York. Right. Yeah. And then as the Western mission really takes off and you start to, you, you do courses, as you say, these courses are high stakes. They have to work. If they don't work, then it's putting the whole mission of everything in jeopardy because uh, you're, well, you're just having to charge it, which you didn't want to do. Right, right, right. And so these do work. So the mission can proceed. And now courses, uh, now not just courses are taking place, but also centers are being established in um, in U.S., in Europe, and Australia, just to start to get those things going. They're getting off the ground. Um, in what ways, if any, really, do you see the mission starting to change? Because you talked about this kind of game of telephone. Well, this, about This is when the assistant teachers actually started. Mm, so tell us about that change. Well, all of a sudden, Kawankaji's not teaching a course, you know. <laughs> so, you know, people had to get used to things, you know, mm -hmm. that everything was on. And we didn't have videos then. You know, you had a, a you had a cassette recorder playing it. You know, so you know it was a little concerning. People were a little at first, but every people started accepting it and started to see that it was working, and then it became acceptable. You know, but it was pretty. You know, there were a lot of old old students of Goenkaji's who weren't really. Um, that thrilled with it to begin with. So. so yeah, I think this is an important moment, this development of the the assistant teachers, because I'm reflecting on something you said about a half hour ago, where when we were talking about Joseph Goldstein starting to teach, and I asked Goenka's reaction, your response was, well, I don't think he really thought he was ready yet. And the thing that stood out was, was yet. Um, that uh, And that kind of leads to a question was, in those early years, to as far as you know, do you think Gwenkaji was looking ahead and preparing his students to take on teaching roles, teaching meaning a fuller sense of the word? Because, of course, what yeah. developed was that they went into assistant teaching roles where they would just merely um, play the recordings and the tapes that Gwenka himself was saying and to go through kind of formulate question and answers with the students. And so that development that came and you reference how some of the old students really um, um, were not pleased as, uh, as that was happening because they were used to Goenka. Do you think that um, as Goenka himself was trying to figure out how to make this transition, was he looking at the idea of 
really having some of his students step up as as teachers on their own footing as himself or you know being able to to be teachers in their own right or or what do you think made him if he was thinking along those lines what ultimately made him made him decide to not go that route and really just have placeholders that would would bring his teachings as i put it goekiji was trying and he was going in the way he thought was best. And whatever he saw down the road, is this is the decisions he made. I really couldn't say, you know, 100% what he was doing. You know, he was, he was, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, this thing turned out to work really well, you mm-hmm. know. And, you know, especially once they sort of got video with it and, you know, and other things. And it wasn't just a cassette recorder, you know. And he saw how people were really, you know, benefiting. So I think that was pretty much when he saw how it would work, you know, I, he might've changed his mind then. I don't know, you know, if he was looking in the other direction to do it, but he, this was working, you know, so he wasn't, you know, he, he's a bit, he's a very smart person and a good businessman. If something's working, why change it publicly that much? Um, and the other, the other thing is what I always think about is that if you can get me somebody who can get better discourses than him, I think you should, he should go be a teacher. I mean, you have to say those 10 day discourses are pretty good. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're, they're definitely the things that makes it, makes it stand out apart from everything else. And, and as with any decision, you know, there are, uh, by virtue of making a decision, you are prioritizing something to sacrifice something else. And this, you know, I mean, the whole thing of being a teacher is sending meta. That was the whole part of teaching and Mm. you can send meta. You don't have to talk and give discourses. Mm, right. Yeah. 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 So as this mission is starting to take off and uh, teachers are being appointed, centers are being established, courses are being run, what stands out from this period? I guess we're looking around the 80s. Well, it was kind of, you know, <laughs> who knew what was going to happen? You know, it was like a, a new thing. And all of a sudden things started taking off and other people were coming and Gwenkichi would come. He came a lot then. You know, his thing was, because VMC was sort of the first center, um, you know, they'll argue, and Australia was at a similar time. Um, he came a lot and taught courses in America. You know, I really, you know, and taught courses at VMC quite a bit. And then he started expanding. It was, I mean, I didn't really know if this whole thing was going to work, you know. I mean, you were not charging. You don't solicit funds. Um you, you you know, you're teaching courses by 10. I mean, it was, you know, it was a pretty interesting time in that sense, you know. And also, you know, and VMC started out as a small farmhouse on eight acres of land. And you've been here, you were here a while ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What it developed into, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a resort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite large. So, so I, I mean, it's sort of hard to look at things when you're involved in them, you know? I think that's really true. I mean, I I just would want to get by day to day, you know, let's make sure the next course works and the next and the next. Mm. So when you look back at that period now, are there things that stand out or that you have perspective on that you were going through with the mission that weren't necessarily apparent at the time? Uh. I don't know how it worked, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Something of a miracle. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, when you think about it, you know, um, in, in using any metrics that you want, this should never have worked. Yeah. 
Um, but the other, you know, and I just think that you know it, it stands out. And I think what it, uh, it, it is that really we did it in in what I considered the right way, you know, in a good way, over forty years, and we got great results from it. And people keep coming, and they're very appreciative, and everything is working really well. And um, you know, I'm I couldn't be happier about that part, you know. Well, it's, it's a yeah. fantastic. You know, it's a fantastic um, place to sit. I mean, you know, I just sit, I, I usually sit like a couple of long courses a year. So I sat, a, I just finished a 20 day course. I remember sitting in India, you know, compared to what I have now, my own bathroom, my own room, a cell, you know, this, I mean, I sat in a room with 11 people or 12 people, you know, knee to knee, you know, it's like, uh, it's like night and day, you know. Mm. Yeah, that it must be really something to look at what the center has evolved into and, you know, how many, how many uh, courses and, and centers there are around the world, how many students have actually gone to SID courses, how many just how many teachers there are, you know, what a big infrastructure this has become and how much protocol around it based on how you having been there in the earliest days of just how rough and and uh, experimental it all was to go from that into this it must be really something to reflect on yeah yeah i mean you know, it, i mean i've seen a lot of people come and go let's put it that way <laughs> there yeah. are not many people still around yeah. Mm. So are, are there things about your institutional memory of just knowing where it came from and how it got from there to here and then seeing and, and those people who come in and you really have a game of telephone now because it's separated by years and in, in yeah. time you can't go back to. Are there things that you feel that are are being kind of lost or misunderstood that you have that memory from the ground that you'd like to, to, to see appreciated or, 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 or better known? I think there's a lot of stuff, but, you know, then you have to think, is it worth it? You know, is it worth correcting? Is it worth it? What's, you know, I've tried to in the last years think about before I say something, what's the purpose of saying it? Or are you saying it for what reason? What do you expect to get out of saying something? So, you know, I, there's not many, that many things that I feel really wrong about that I think I'd say. There's a lot of stuff I might not like or don't think is right or whatever, but, you know, it really doesn't matter that much. Mm. I don't really mean so much things that are wrong, that are like right or wrong, but just nuances or, or memories oh, yeah. of, oh, you yeah. know, that just aren't so appreciated or known or that have been oh, modified. Like, yeah. like anything you feel comfortable with that sharing just to give us greater in, appreciation. In the very beginning, I mean, it was, we did all the work ourselves and stuff, you know, we, you know, we, I mean, the amount of work and the amount of dedication that were people doing stuff, you know, you know, from cleanup, from cooking, from this, from from everything, from building. When it, it it doesn't have the same feel anymore like that. Even though there's a lot of people who do, um, you know, work or things are courses are run volunteer, obviously on managers and cooking. It doesn't have that same feel of like you know how we were all in this together type of thing. Hmm. It's much more. Um, Mature in that sense. Knowledge is good. Mm. Much more mature in that sense. You know, it's, you know, people come from all walks. Of, you know, there's just not that type of thing anymore. And there, you know, all of us in the very beginning, we had to sort of um, 
Bond of India, Goenkaji of all this. That's sort of like, there's a couple of people left and stuff. There's not that many of that anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, that type of thing, you know, very, very nostalgic about the old, you know, it was just so much, so different, you know. Now I'm talking to bankers about loans and more. (laughs) Yeah, and, and and contractors about finishing jobs, you know, mm. and that's what I do there now, you know. So it's a whole different, you know, it's just a, a different thing. But everything's necessary. Everything grows. Everything changes. I was going to say that. I mean, is there really even as a thought experiment? Is there another trajectory that this could have taken, where when something goes from being informal and messy and you have to go halfway around the world to have a course where you don't even have food for the first couple of days. And in the cases of what you were describing is something that is, you know, um, standardized and protocol and institutionalized and standards and all these other things that, uh, and permanent centers, like if that's the route that you want to go, how do you avoid this kind of change taking place? You can't, yeah. I don't think, you know, it's just not going to, it's not really going to happen unless you want to go off in the woods by yourself or something, you know, it's just, yeah. it's just the way things are. I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, when they talk about the Buddha, right. First he has, you know, his five aesthetics and then he's at, then he's at monasteries with 8,000, you know, 10,000, uh, you know, monks. So that's what happens. Yeah. Right. And now with Goenkaji having passed away about 10 years ago now, uh, and not only was he such a presence in terms of those who knew him and really spent time with him versus those who, you know, even while he was alive, didn't have that interaction or had a very brief interaction while they just heard him on a tape. Now you have an organization moving forward that doesn't have that leader and doesn't have a chosen successor. And so I suppose as we look at protocols and, and the standards and, and, and this worldwide mission where you have things happening in so many different cultures and countries, that is an added challenge of figuring out what that core mission is and how decisions get made and, and everything else as it continues to expand and grow. Fortunately, it's not my challenge. All I care about is VMC. I stay there. I do my work. I hang out at the meditation center. I'm there three days a week at least. So it be for somebody else. Yeah. As, good. I, as I tell people, you know, they say, oh, are you going to build any more? I said, I'm not. If you want to, you can go right ahead. <laughs> You've kept your vow from all those years before. Yep. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Are there, um, and thinking about your memories of where it came from and just imagining a new student, no background, coming, sitting in a 10-day course, everything they're hearing and seeing being from the, um, the, the way things are currently set up without that background, um, which is wonderful that that opportunity exists. But what uh, about the background that you lived through, about the history that, that you passed, what about those experiences would you want people to know today if you had a way of of being able to impart something from that experience that's generally not as understood or appreciated? What about that would you really want them to bring to life and understand? Um, I mean, the, the, the whole thing that I really would like people to appreciate more about the whole thing is the gratitude that they owe going to. Mm-hmm. That no matter what, that is the essence of of this that none of this would have happened without him and the gratitude you should have towards him is immense 
And that's what I feel is that the people, you know, that what they lose, they don't get. You know, it's hard to have gratitude towards them. The other thing, because that to me was, you know, um, just the most important part of everything. You know, gratitude to the person of Goenka. Gratitude, to, well, to you know, to him for doing all of this. You know, I mean, people don't realize he could have had a very comfortable life. He didn't yeah. do this. He didn't do this for fame, fortune, or anything. You know, he did it to help people. You know, mm. and. You know, he tried his best. You know, was he perfect? No, but he tried. You know, everything he did, he tried. It was to make people, um, for people to have a better time, to get a deeper understanding of Dhamma and to be able to progress. And, you know, I mean, that to me is a big thing, you know. But I think, you know, that's a very, and I don't mean, I, I don't mean in like honor or this. I mean real gratitude, you know, for mm-hmm. Well, Goenka himself certainly had enormous gratitude for Seiju Baken. You just right. hear that effusing out of him. And Goenkaji was, of course, a student of Seiju Baken. You were a student of Goenkaji. So being a student of Goenkaji, not of the Goenka Vipassana organization, but actually of Goenkaji because you were so close for so many years, for so long, what shape does your own gratitude have? How would I know it must be hard to, to think of formulating this, but how would you describe the, the nature of, of how you would characterize your gratitude for Gwenka. What was his, what, what did he want done? He wanted sent, he wanted people to be able to meditate. He wanted people to learn this technique. You have to help doing this. You have to, you, you have to surrender to your, your life towards doing these things so that his, his, what he wanted done, you're helping him. That's the, that's the way to show the gratitude towards him. That's the way, you know, so you want to be able to help more people, you know, progress. And that's the way to show the, that's the gratitude I have for him. Because I can't, I can't tell you how much it's helped me in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was pretty messed up. <laughs> say mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, and I've gone through quite a bit over the years. And whatever came my way, I was not perfect in it. But I had the Dhamma, and with the Dhamma, I kept my Sheila, I kept myself through it, and I got through everything, you know, and I try to keep doing it, so. Mm. And how does it feel for you personally to know that you played some small role in this whole mission and this intercontinental historical development of mindfulness movement? I'm happy about that. The only one thing I'd say, I have nothing to do with this mindfulness movement. Okay. <laughs> I don't buy that part at all, okay? Okay, maybe the wrong terminology. Yeah, but, uh... because, because I'm not in business, which the mindfulness movement might be. You know, I read somewhere it's a billion-dollar industry now. Right, and I, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean as a, a, the, the exportation of a... Um, yeah, I, I'm very happy. I'm a little, you know, sometimes every once in a while I say, what is going on here, you know? So... With that, I, I think this has really been a great exploration. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to go over some of these themes, some of this hidden history, I would say. I hope we get a chance to follow up on some of it. And, and uh, I know you're not one who really talks and opens up much, so I'm, I'm really thankful that you trusted us and came on here to be able to tell your story. Thanks for doing that. Thank you for having me. I hope... Uh... I hope it's a good I hope it'll be a good experience for people to listen to.
जड़ोर बसंत मन की समता ना छुटे तो सुख शांति अनंत We'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given. We simply could not continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous donors, listeners, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated and helps us continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform. Thank you. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement (CDM), families of deceased victims, internally displaced person (IDP) camps, food for impoverished communities military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause in both websites except credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me/betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info@betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word. spelled b e t t e r b u r m a .org If you would like to give in another way please contact us We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar available at alokacrafts.com Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities but also our nonprofit's wider mission That's alokacrafts spelled a l o k a C R A F T S one word alokacrafts.com Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support राग मूल है रोग रूर द्वेष दोष रो मूल मोह मूल पर पंच रो समता मुक्ति मूल जन मन व्यापी 
Bayaran 